You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Arrival. The new world is built from wolves and barbarousness. Every shore is record and blue with oak. Every family is here, unborn, in the still marine fog. And fish the length of a child and deer to rival cities. These things have carried from home. Yarn, hair, a stone, weevils of loss, little devils of sorrow. They said, how easy to cross, as if for each a lit gourd, emptied and beaming, swept along the dark streets. As we wade past the shoal to a team of flared, softly wickering horses, the words to a childish game play along the dune ridge. Lights all switched off at the mains, folding chairs in a ring. Now hold out your hands. Here are the brains, the eyes, the heart. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's ongoing podcast series. My name is Colin Waters and I shall be your host for the next 30 minutes. For this episode, you're going to get double your money as we have not one, but two poets, Crystal Bamford and Don Patterson. I wanted to do a podcast with both poets as they're going to be reading together at the Scottish Poetry Library at an event we're holding on Wednesday the 23rd of November at 6pm. Tickets are £7 or £5 if you're eligible for concessions and there are still some tickets available. I can confirm that, although they are going fast. Christelle, who you heard reading her poem Arrival at the start of the show, she was born in the US but has been living in Edinburgh for over five years now. Um, And I first encountered her work when I read uh, a fantastic early poem of hers about visiting a STD clinic. She's completed an MLIT in creative writing at the University of St Andrews and has been published in the American Poetry Review and the Kenyan Review. She also won a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award. Two-time winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry, Don Patterson more than deserves his reputation as one of Britain's foremost poets. His latest slim volume is 40 Sonnets, which is published by Faber and will no doubt net a few more literary prizes for him, and deservedly so. He hails from Dundee and is living in Edinburgh these days. Both poets came into the SPL in July, where we spoke about translations, sonnets, and what sort of character makes for a good poem. I have the great pleasure of being joined today by Christelle Bamford. Hello. And Don Patterson. Yeah. And uh, we're talking to both of the, uh, these poets together because they're going to be doing an event at the SPL later this year. Uh, our autumn programme later this year has a very loose theme of crossing border, translation, isn't it nice to go on with your neighbours in Europe? Something along those lines. And so I want to talk, start by talking to both you guys about poets from other countries than your own countries and how you've worked with them, translations, all that kind of stuff. Christelle, you, in 2013, took a trip to Iraq, didn't you? And worked with some poets there. What, what, what was that like? Oh, it was amazing, yeah. We went to um, Rubil in Kurdistan for a week. Um, and we did a series of translation workshops with four Iraqi and Kurdish poets over the, over the span of that week. And we kind of swapped work and then they came over to the UK and did a bit of a tour. And yeah, it was amazing. Um, we worked with uh, sort of classical Arabic and also Kurdish 
with the help of some really skilled, uh, tr the actual translators, to be honest, who were involved, were, were completely integral. Um, yeah, so it was, it was really interesting and it was nice having them over here. It was one of the first times uh, one of the guys had ever seen snow and so... Uh, came to the right country for Yeah, that. I know. That was quite amazing. We were like, oh yeah, you can, you can make a snowball. And he started trying to catch the flakes in his hands. You're like, no, no, use the ground stuff, it's better. So it was really interesting. It was nice because not only did we do this sort of exchange um, in terms of the poetry, but the cultural exchange felt sort of quite genuine. It helped that we all got along really well with each other. So. And Iraq at that time, of course, um, had been going through a lot of convulsions and has gone through convulsions again. I guess that was a quite a quiet... Well, there was a lull. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we had a sort of a small window there. And of course, at the time, we didn't realise it was a window. Um, so, for instance, it was interesting. We were supposed to take a, a day trip to uh, Lalish, which is the Yazidi shrine. It's sort of like their version of Mecca. Um, but we actually got turned around because all the bridges got washed out because of flooding, so we never made it. But it's, it's kind of interesting and, and sort of heartbreaking to think that a lot of the areas that we passed through um, are now sort of under control or at least in kind of extreme conflict. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was lucky for us to be able to kind of get in when we did. And again, I think Erbil is still one of the safer places in Iraq. And I think Kurdistan in general is, so it's probably not nearly as bad as the sort of Kirkuk. And Don, you've done two books of translation. You did Rilke, that guy, and uh, Mikado. Um, so what's your feeling on, on translation and working with poets whose language isn't your own? I, I, it was something that, that I've always kind of done when I got stuck with more and stuff, I think, you know, as a, as a way of, uh, 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 of that kind of block or doldrums or something, you know, um, and, and just from a, from a purely selfish point of view, it was a way of, you know, uh, jettisoning that thing that you come to think of unproductively as your voice, I suppose, which I've never myself had, uh, had much use for really, you know. I mean, it's useful to a point and then you mine it out and you then you, you, go, you, you desperately need to have another voice. So I've found in the past a simple solution is to, to steal one you fancy, try it on for a bit and see how that goes. But, you know, there's a more serious side to it, I guess, or, 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 or a more altruistic side to it, which is that, you know, uh, you, you see these poets, too, you know, uh, or, or, or poems, more usually, that you think could be maybe a wee bit better served in English, or, or you see something in the original that isn't coming out, uh, or you see something that, 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 that the corpus of, you know, sort of English poetry itself doesn't have in it. Or something like that. Or you see a certain bravery that you, not a voice, but a bravery that you want to arrogate to yourself that, that you can't find in yourself, you know. So, there, I mean, there are all sorts of different reasons for doing it, is what I'm saying. I, I guess uh, I feel it is slightly mysterious and there is a wee bit of sort of, you know, sad thing about it. I think you identify a certain spiritual kinship with, with, with other voices, loving or dead, you know, and I think that, that's what sort of, you know, provides the, the, the conduit. You read something and you think, yes, that's how it is. Um, how can I say that in, in the language that I know? Has it only been dead poets you've translated? Well, they're the best collaborators, <laughs> uh, by far. But no, I've worked with a living, um, I, I, and did not wish them dead uh, during the process much. Um, and that was interesting, but that's a really different thing, because often there was much more like the sort of situation that Christelle described, where, where it's like a project and, and people are put together, and the success of that is so often depends on social things 
Um, whereas, you know, so working with the dead isn't really so much of a social thing. Um, but, but yeah, like, I mean, so last year was it the year before I was in Berlin and uh, and some translation project, worked with a guy called Mikhail Don, who's a, uh, who writes stuff very different from my own. So that was quite interesting. He's quite like sort of someone like Marif Langley, actually. I mean, you know, if you were to think about English equivalent, not someone that, that, that um, you know, is who writes poems that are anything like my own, but but none, nonetheless, and, and the need to extend oneself towards that kind of imagination, you find yourself, you know, sort of, you know, bringing things back into the language that, that, that you hadn't worked with before, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I guess you get new tools that way, you know, so that was a really interesting kind of process. And he was a sort of, you know, and I liked him, that helped, I mean, he was a, just a, like a miserable bastard like myself, so temperamentally we were sort of practical. And so, when you're doing translations, both of you, um, do you think the point is to be as accurate as possible to original, or is it a platform which you can work in some of your own DNA, as it were? How do you, what do you, how do you approach it? I think the, the one time that I did it in depth, um, or as in depth as I'm capable of doing it, uh, was with that project you just referenced, and I feel like there must be a massive difference between uh, working with a poet who's not there and working with a poet who's right in front of you and actually what kind of, how they're approaching the project as well. So for me, there are poets that we worked with who really wanted a word-for-word -word translation, you know, kind of as close to the original as possible. And it, that was really tricky actually because you, you sort of the, the letter of the law but not the spirit, I think sometimes. Um, whereas there are other poets who are really kind of just interested in allowing you to use their work as a platform to come up with something that was probably closer to yeah a version i think don you use that word quite a lot than than a more sort of classic sort of translation so i think it just for me working with the person sitting across the table looking in the eye it had a lot more to do with how they wanted to approach mm -hmm. it rather than what you wanted to do with their work because i think there has to be some level of respect there for what the poet's intentions are um, and you're kind of a conduit for that um, depends on how much freedom you decide that they'd like to give you, I think. I mean, I think that's the strength that, you know, and also the possible dangers of working with the living, you know, in that kind of social way, which is you do have to sort of, you know, sort of listen to their concerns, but, but uh, there, there are problems when they go against what you know to be best for the poem, and which, which aren't always the same as being best for the, uh, the poet. I'm always, always like that, you know, that, that little book of uh, Better Equals, the on translation, his name is currently slipped my mind, but at the very start of it in the introduction, he dismisses the translation of poetry. He says, of course, you can't tra translate poetry. Let's just say that to one side. And he's right, you can't. You can't translate poetry uh, in the sense that you can translate other stuff. Um, because uh, not to, you know, hopefully pay poetry kind of a deserved compliment, but it works with the last percentile of the idiomatic sophistication of the language. Um, and it uses as much connotation as, you know, nuance and things that are merely suggested and brought to mind as well as the things that it literally means. Um, so every time you do something, you write a real line that you're quite chuffed with, you know, yourself as a poet, you realise the impossibility, you know, of ever finding, you know, sort of any kind of equivalent in another language because it's, it's to do with how it sounds, the way the words fit together, with this, uh, you know, sort of associations with this etymology, and you end up with this thing that's such a complex coordinate, there's no way you're going to find an equivalent in any other language. So what you have to do is find something, and, and, I, and what Christelle's describing is 
what that something is, because there's no such thing as translation in that sense. It's different when you're working on a technical manual. For a poem, it's an entirely different proposition. And in a sense, it's always going to be a version, which is to say it's always a form of interpretation rather than a translation. Um, and it could be quite close to the original, and it could be quite distanced, but that has no implications for the quality of what you're doing in terms of the end result. Um, so I think that they're, two, they're almost like there are two different processes, and you find sort of a you know in a way. And the one hand, there's translation, and that's when you have expertise and you and you know the language, you know. So so the means kind of justify the the end, and then there's the other side, and that's where the end really justifies whatever crazy means you want, you know. So if you're um, trying to make a decent poem in English out of this thing in another language, it really doesn't matter how the hell you get there. And what goes by the by, and you know, sort of, and what crimes against the original you commit in the process. No, important because you get a really cool point out of it. Yeah, so that's an extreme version of that. Um, Justify the means. Yeah, so you find your, you usually find your way somewhere between the two extremes, I think, in that process, you know, and call it versioning or translation or whatever you want. Sorry, no, I was just going to say it's interesting in terms of like, for instance, like cultural sensitivity. I know that uh, when we were doing the translations, um, the F word in one of my poems. Just it. I know, and it felt quite important to have it, and it felt important that it not be watered down. But um, the, the poet who was working with it was really like, look, we're going to be reading this to audiences in, in Erbil, and this really isn't going to fly, and we just don't have, not only do we not have the equivalent, mm -hmm. just, I mean, if we had the equivalent, we wouldn't be able to, to, to read it or kind of distribute it. So we had to find some sort of compromise. And then, yeah, I don't know, it, it's... it's um, I guess it depends on yeah, where, you, where you're performing your work and where, I don't know, there's quite a lot but of But that's sort of like factors, really interesting, isn't it? Because like you're also translating it into the culture, aren't you? I mean, mm. the sensitivities of that culture, it's usually your own that you're bringing it into. But you maybe only really notice when it goes the other way, you know, sort of, a, you know, a, 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 you can't read these gestures properly because you just, you just don't know where the equivalents are, you know? And is it right to have the word, or is it right to do something that provokes equivalent outrage or discomfort? You know, what's the analog, you know, to that particular gesture? You know, if that's what's important. Yeah, that's right. I guess there's this kind of like an infinite wave of yeah connotation. Yeah. and very often the gesture is more important than the actual word if that's your priority. That's so right. So yeah. it's, it's really really interesting. Uh, and this is a point from uh, Orpheus. Um, this is the last poem in, in, in Broca's uh, series, uh, which I've given the title uh, Being. Silent comrade of the distances, know that space dilates with your own breath, ring out as a bell into the earth from the dark rafters of its own high place, then watch what feeds on you grow strong again. Learn the transformations through and through. What in your life has most tormented you? If the water's sour, turn it into wine. Our senses cannot fathom this night, so be the meaning of their strange encounter. At their crossing, be the radiant centre. And should the world itself forget your name, say this to the still earth. I flow. Say this to the quick stream. I am. Okay, so let's talk about sonnets now. Don, you've just published 40 of them in a bright yellow cover, very handsome it is too. And you can write in sonnets as well, Christelle. 
So, what is it about sonnets that reaches the parts that other poetic forms can? Why are you drawn to, to the sonnet? You get yourself pegged, I mean, maybe fair enough, you know, maybe it's fair enough that you get pegged as a lover of the sonnet form, which I'm really not, I know, certainly not anymore. Um, <laughs> no, but I, it, to be serious, I mean, I'm indifferent towards them, as one should be. I mean, it's crazy to love a form, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's, a, it's an empty construct that's useful for certain things. So the sonnets are useful for certain kinds of points. And it's a bit like, you know, like uh, like Fugue, or, or well, actually it's a lot like a 12-hour blues. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're say, an improvising musician, it's a lot like 12-hour blues. It's a form within which you can do interesting things. And, it's, and it shapes the kind of things that you play in an interesting way. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't prescribe them. Um, but it does give form to otherwise what might be a kind of shapeless argument. So it's a useful form for me for working some stuff out that I don't, don't understand yet. I mean, the song is a useful way of going, I know this and I know that, and I can see that they go together in some way, but I don't know how. And writing this song, it will often, you know, figure that out for me. It's a song called The Wave, which is uh, narrated uh, in the voice of a wave. Um, so I would assume it would be an allegory of some kind. Uh, wave. For months I had moved across the open water like a wheel under its skin, a frictionless and by then almost wholly abstract matter, with nothing in my head beyond the bliss of my own breaking. Now the long foreshore would hear my full confession, and I'd drain into the shale till I was filtered pure. There was no way to tell on that bare plain, but I felt my power run down with the miles, and by the time I saw the scattered sails, the painted front, and children on the pier, I was nothing but a fold in her blue gown, and knew I was already in the clear. I hid the beach and swept away the town. Um, how do you feel about writing songs, Christelle? Hey, to be honest, it's probably a label that I have to the poems after they had been written. I know that's like the lazy man's like, way of writing sonnets, but I, I think, I don't know if I've been reading quite a few of them, but it really wasn't intentional at all. And afterwards I kind of counted the lines and realised that there was a sort of a sort of functioning volta, you know, on the eighth or ninth line, and often there's a couplet at the end, and, you know, but I mean, they're not, as you'll hear, sort of Petrarchan or Chickweed, you know, there's no iambic pentameter, so they're very rough sort of ghosts of sonnets rather than, than, than anything that adheres to the more sort of traditional forms. But yeah, I mean, I would say that these seem to be sort of convenient ways to express a certain kind of thought, and not, not thematically, but a certain, I don't know, I guess the, the shape of a certain kind of thought um, adheres well to sonnets. And again, that has nothing to do with them being like a love poem or, um, you know, or anything. I think they can address any number of things, as, you know, the Sonnets and Dawn's book does. Um, but I think, in general, the process of them, the shape of them, really kind of lends itself well. And I think it's probably just quite an organic form, maybe, um, or more organic than a lot of other forms. Yeah. And that's why things fall into them, rather than them having to be kind of uh, filled, if that makes any sense. It's just a natural way of poetry organising itself, mm. it goes sonnet Yeah, I mean, it really is, a, I, mean, I, I mean, I sort of, want to say this many times before, but I mean, I think it's just, it is the case that if, if, you, if you've managed to wipe out all the sonnets, they'd be back by tomorrow tea time, in the form, 
Because it's a square on a page, first of all, so it has a real typographic kind of symmetry to it. And, and it does, as Christelle says, pursue this kind of interestingly organic shape that one's thought often takes, which is that and that and, oh yeah, that, that's cool. So it's, it's um, I think it's a genuinely kind of organic form uh, that reflects really the way that uh, the human brain in some, uh, in some ways is, is, co is constituted in the kind of thinking that it does. Unlike the Sestina, say, of the Villanelle, which doesn't, it <laughs> isn't organic. It's a bit daft, but The next poem is a fairly new one, um, very, very new, probably too new to read, it's arrogant, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Uh, it's called Abandoned Wrecking Yard Motif Number One. In a concrete room in the woods, amongst cars brought in on roads, now swallowed up by the murderous greenery, not the scream of an unknown pet, not the long, slow rot of a man made thing, nor an arm combed as a moral. Just an iris on a single stalk, a miracle of eccentricity or a weird act of kindness. Little messenger, everyone is looking for you. Your image is everywhere. Because of Shakespeare and levels like that, one thinks the sonnets to do with love, you know, and that's it's sort of grounded, but in 40 sonnets and, and in your selection as well, Christelle, you sort of move beyond that and find them other uses for the sonnet rather than just... Well, we found those uses a long time ago. I mean, Shakespeare sort of really sort of did the lexicon and that stuff. I mean, even though ostensibly the, the sequence was about love, he, he ended up writing about everything else too. You know, and love was really just a peg to hang it on. So, I mean, after that, I think people felt pretty much liberated to use the sonnet for whatever they done pleased. What about talking about the kind of characters that appear in your poems? So, Christelle, uh, you are a poem I love about Dolly the Sheep. And you write about in 40 sonnets about Tony Blair, about the TV character House, about the photographer Francesca Woodman. What brings certain characters to the, the fore of your consciousness and makes you want to write about them? What's the sort of the moment you move from just being interested in it to actually committing to doing it? Most of us are interested in people, I think. You know, it's not, you know, uh, so it would be weird not to write about people. Um, but, I mean, and you can't just write about your friends and family all the time because I mean you know partly because you know this you know the most satisfying kind of I suppose the most satisfying form you know of 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 poems are often elegiac worryingly and 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 for that reason it's quite difficult sometimes to write you know sort of about you know about the your um your family and your friends even though they should on paper sort of inspire the you know sort of inspire the greatest passions. So, but I mean, but there are these kind of, you know, these figures that come up in your life that form part of your, your, your imaginative and cultural environment and um, become significant that you obsess over. And, it's, and it doesn't do any more than reflect a, 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 you know, intensity of feeling or obsession in case of Blair, you know, because he's, a, you know, it's a, in many ways a loathsome individual. In other ways, you know, it's a kind of interesting kind of monster. Uh, Woodman was just this kind of, you know, supremely kind of insightful, weird artist of, you know, sort of, uh, 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 I can't think of anyone who makes art that, you know, that, that, that does what she did. Was there anything you mentioned? House. Yeah, House, yeah, and that was, that was really a meditation on the way that sort of watching TV sort of replaced, you know, sort of, you know, different kinds of religious ritual and church going and stuff like that. And House seems the prime example of that, you know. That, that, TV that's designed to do that, you know, so liturgical in its rhythms, you know, it has this Christ-like figure at the centre, this man of constant sorrow. 
Uh, he's always thinking about us. Weirdly, even though he's not yeah. really present much. And what about yourself, Christelle, when you're writing poems? What do you when do you go, oh yeah, I can do something with this guy? Or or she? Well, or she. Um, do you know, to be honest, it's really funny with Dolly the Sheep because I have no vested interest in Dolly the Sheep whatsoever. Um, and I would say that probably goes through for a lot of the the individuals that I write about um, who aren't my family and who aren't, I mean, I would never sort of call out my family by name, I don't think, or anyone that I knew and loved, except with the exception of my dad. Um, but yeah, I think in general, like, and the same way that a poem starts as sort of like a little niggling, I think there's a niggling about certain characters that are a bit sad or a bit murky or a bit conflicted that kind of grabs you and they might not play any real role in your day-to-day -day life or have any kind of real significance for you at all but they serve a purpose I know that's like a really sort of cold cynical way of thinking about it but they, they serve as like an interesting jumping off point for something else Um, I think if someone's too important to you and they loom too large in your life it must be so difficult to write I mean I'm sure it's sort of the greats do it but it must be terribly difficult to kind of have an in, whereas for smaller people, more marginal people in your life, I think it's a lot easier to kind of try to grab at them and, and pin them down. So that's but, I, mean, I think what we're still seeing is really interesting, I think that's, that's true, I mean, it's, it's often at the peripheries, and I think the reason for that is very often, you know, what's allegedly a subject matter, and a point is really just pretext to write about someone else. Uh, this poem's called Dad, Four Years On, and it's, again, a very loose sonnet. Um, based very, very roughly on Sylvia Plath's daddy. It's not necessarily an homage or anything, but it's just kind of taking, uh, essentially stealing the rhyme from her and running with it. Uh, Dad, four years on. I can't make it beautiful and true. You're now a candle, unlit, among the batteries, loose change, calcified glue, or the Mary Celeste when a light skiff would do. The internet's glistering pulse has nothing on you. I search for a blessing to a phantom at you. I'll wait for my life. You're every and nowhere more shade than hue. Both gone as they come and long overdue. Well, that's it for another episode of the SPL podcast series. Many thanks to both our poets, Christelle Bamford and Don Patterson. And I think this is the point where I remind you that we are indeed hosting a reading by both poets together. Um, they'll be reading at the SPL on Wednesday the 23rd of November. And that reading will take place at 6pm. Tickets again, they're £7 or £5 if you're eligible for concessions. Tickets are still available, but as I said earlier on, they're going fast. Don't kick yourself by missing out. Thanks also to Will Campbell, who wrote, produced, performed the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. And thanks, of course, to yourself for listening. Thank you. If you're interested in what we're doing here at the Scottish Poetry Library, there's several ways you can find out what we're doing. Um, we have a website. The address for the website is www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We have a Facebook page. Just type in Scottish Poetry Library. That'll take you to us. Uh, Twitter, we do Twitter of course and our Twitter handle is at By Leaves We Live we're exploring Instagram currently and um, I think our Instagram handle is SPL Scotland I have opened an account on Snapchat but I really don't know what I'm doing there so um, I will update you <laughs> when I finally do 
And, you know, why don't we finish with another poem? Why don't we finish with a poem by Don Patterson? Um, his poem about House, the TV character House. And um, this is how it goes. House. Better all in all the God we know. Broken, drunk, in agony, at bay, yet undistracted from the mystery of our own suffering. And if they show its last to blunder wild eyed through the screen with stop the chemo, he just needs to fart. Or gently intimate it might be smart to swap your Tolstoy for a magazine. We too have known that three o'clock abyss between the differential and the kiss, where a man must face the smaller man within or remember where he stashed the Vicodin. Or let that thousand yard and one inch stare see through us too, for we don't have a prayer. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.